So I want to um, start off here with a, with a question that I want you to, in your own mind, I want you to, to answer. And that is, um, if you were to go to a church like this one or another one, like how would you know that it's a church that's full of the Spirit? Like how would you know if a church is full of the Spirit of God? All right, I, I actually want you to write it on the, on the front panel of your mind. All right, I want you maybe a word or two words. Like, how, how do you discern, like, this is a place where the Spirit inhabits. You can sense the Spirit. How would you answer? Are you writing it in your head or are you just looking at me? <laughs> I want you to write it in your head because I, I just want you to think about it. It's a really important question. Because, like, nine out of ten times, what I often hear in terms of the presence of the Spirit has to do with a, a subjective emotional moving. Like someone would say, wow, that was really a movement of the Spirit. Now, a subjective movement of, this, of our emotions can be uh, influenced by the Spirit, but not necessarily. How would you answer that? Really important question, since we're talking about the second member of, or excuse me, third member of the Trinity. Um, a scholar by the name of Dennis Johnson, um, an author, um, asked the question this way. Would you recognize a spirit-filled church if you met one? How could you tell? By measuring the decibels of the singing in worship? By checking uh, the clapping, raising, or waving of hands in praise? Or are you, are you suspicious of such rowdy joy? <laughs> it's good. Do you sense the Spirit's presence more in the silence of meditation, in a stilled sanctuary, and a liturgy rich in reverence and reflection? He's talking about both sides of the church, like they're really expressive, and then there's the, the very liturgical. So which, silence or exuberance? Well, he goes on to warn with a very truthful statement. He says this. He says, whether our part of the church, that is, whether you're on the exuberant side, or some might call it charismatic side, or on the liturgical side, where you do things routinely, um, whether our part of the church associates the spirit with the buoyant celebration or with hushed awe, the externals can be faked and empty. Enthusiasm can be manipulated. Liturgy can be mechanical. And meditation can be self-absorbed rather than Christ-centered. How then can we filter out the static of the counterfeit in order to recognize the real signs of the Spirit's presence? That's an important question. It's an important question for me. And it should be an important question for each of us who calls ourselves Christians and says we believe in the Spirit. What, what, what are the signs of the authentic presence of the Spirit in the life of a church? And his answer... Uh, Dennis Johnson's answer is that we have to let the voice of the Spirit speak through the Scripture to answer that question. We have to let his voice, the Spirit, is the one who inspired this word. Therefore, it's what he inspired his authors to say about himself. That has to be the definitive word as to what constitutes um, uh, an authentic uh, filling of the Spirit. And I believe one of those authors... Author Luke, who wrote Acts, gives us a picture of the work of the Spirit in, in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now, I just want to say up front that for some people, this is their favorite passage in all the Bible, especially if they tend to be more on the Pentecostal side of things. For other people, where the word Pentecost probably has some like 
connotations of a bit crazy. Um, and the whole idea of, man, there's these like cloven tongues and fire and wind. And it almost sounds uh, a little crazy. And, and maybe for some, it might even be embarrassing to read this. Like, really? Well, my hope this morning is for you to see the, these verses through the lens of the Old Testament. Um, because it's not crazy and it's not scary. Actually, what happens here in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, is nothing less than an astounding um, event in which God does something amazing. And, and I want us to see it this morning together. So, and I'm going to do that by focusing on four signs in those verses, um, which I'll come back to in a, a couple of moments. But let me just pull back, and, and I want just to see these few verses in light of the story of the Scripture and see that this is actually a, a, a huge, huge event. It was anticipated. We've been in the book of Exodus, right? So we've been studying the life of Moses. You know, it delivers the people out of Egypt, um, brings them out into the desert where they meet with God, and God covenants with them, I'll do this, you do this. Well, Moses saw the people and, and recognized that they just, they had the right information, right? They had the Ten Commandments and, and so much more. And yet they kept failing over and over and over and over again. Um, that he recognized that the information, godly, righteous information, is not enough. They need something else. And, and so in a, in a moment of desperation, he says this in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. And I'll just read these for you, and you write them down if you want to go look, look at them later. He says, would, this is a question, would that or an expression of a desire, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. See, it's all this failure to keep the covenant over and over and over, and he goes, man, I wish, I wish all the people had the spirit. Uh, 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 an important reminder that having the right information as to how to live is not enough. He's, he's, he's saying, man, the people need the spirit. Divine empowerment is what they need. So that's, a, that's an expression of his desire, the, the desire for the Spirit. Well, the, the prophets that would follow him, prophets like Joel, uh, prophesied of a day in which things would change, when God would pour out his Spirit, where people would be enabled to keep the law in their heart. Joel chapter 2, in his poetic language, he writes, and Veronica read it earlier, it, and it, it shall come to pass... Afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. It says, the day is coming when, when, the, when, the, when the spirit is going to be given to all God's people. A different kind of covenant where it's not just the information that's given, but a divine presence is, is, is given to, to God's people. We come into the New Testament and we meet Jesus' MC, you know, the, the John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets and kind of the, the one who MCs Jesus coming into the world, right? Um, that's what I think of him as. And, and how does John the Baptist introduce Jesus? Well, he introduces him this way in Luke chapter 3, written by the same author as Acts, um, verse 16. John says, I baptize you with water. As the baptism of repentance. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Or literally with wind 
and fire. The name spirit is the name breath or wind. So he's saying, Jesus, who I'm introducing, like he's the one who's going to baptize, not with water, but with wind and with fire, with spirit and with fire. So we come here to Pentecost, to our passage. Here Moses is anticipating just, man, people need the spirit. Joel says the time is coming. Well, God will pour out his spirit. John says Jesus is the one who's going to do it. And we come to this first and second chapter of Acts where Jesus says, listen, you need to wait in Jerusalem until, until you are empowered. And then you will be witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And here in chapter 2, the waiting is done, and we read that the Spirit falls. This is a, a prophesied event. And I believe it is what theologians would call a redemptive event. That is, all of this time waiting, and on the basis of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, now God pours out his Spirit on his people, on his church. And I believe, in light of the fact that it is a fulfillment of a prophetic event, that it is something that happened once with an enduring reality. Once with an enduring reality. In other words, he gave the Spirit to the church not to take it back. The Spirit has already, the church has already been baptized. Now we're living in the reality of that. Now it is true, I will say, that there are three other, what you might think of them as, as many Pentecost moments um, with the Samaritans, who are, who are half Jew, half not Jew, with Cornelius the Gentile, who's a God-fearer, and then um, what I think are probably a group of converted pagans uh, that were following uh, John the Baptist. But even in those three extra expressions, I think functionally all they do is, is, is boldly, um, uncontestably, and forcefully say, you know what, this covenant that I have brought about is going to include not just Jewish people, but the Samaritan people. They get the spirit just like the Jewish people. And, and the Gentile, he doesn't have to convert to Judaism anymore. Look, I pour out my spirit on him as evidenced in his tongues. And then these ex-pagans, like God is saying by way of pouring out the spirit in these mini Pentecosts, all these people are now included. It's a different day. It's a different time. But it's all an extension of this baptism by Holy Spirit and fire. The Spirit has been, I believe, given to the church once for all, and that is the enduring reality. Not everybody will agree with that. That's okay. So now, coming back to the text itself. How are we supposed to make this uncrazy? How are we supposed to make uh, Acts um, 2, 1 through 6, awesome? I mean, they are awesome. I just, I want to focus on four signs in this, these, these verses. One, the, the day of Pentecost itself. Two, the mighty rushing wind. Three, the tongues as a fire. And four, the whole speaking in other languages. Those, those, those I believe, are four signs that, a, that an event is taking place. Um, Long-anticipated event. So the first one, Pentecost. Like, God could have chosen any day to pour out a spirit, right? He could have chosen a nice warm evening in the summer, sometime in the cool of the fall. Could have been Easter, could have been Christmas, could have been Thanksgiving, could have been Fourth of July. <laughs> he could have chosen any day. Well, why this day? Well, 
Because it's pointing us to something deeper. Because before the Christians celebrated this Pentecost, it was a Jewish holiday. Um, And they didn't think of the word Pentecost, which means 50th, as weird or strange. That is, they celebrated Pentecost as the, the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. That is the time in which they would give thanks to God for, for the wheat harvest, right? That's what they, so they celebrated this before Christians ever did. But they also celebrated the fact on Pentecost that it was, they believed, the day in which the Lord gave the law of Moses to the Jewish people and for all practical purposes initiated a covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. God had a covenant with individuals, but for the first time in the giving of the law, really for all practical purposes, Israel as a covenant nation was born, all right? 50 days after Passover. Passover happens, you know, Passover, right? The firstborn son of Egypt dies, which leads to the liberation. God brings them out, and roughly 50 days later, God initiates a covenant with them and gives birth to Israel. Well, the parallel should become clearer to you. Here you have Passover, not only not, 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 the, not, not, not the Egyptian Passover, you have the Passover, the death of the Son of God on behalf of sinful men to liberate us from the slavery to sin and death and the devil. And then 50 days later, 50 days after he rises, he pours out his spirit on God's people and in effect gives birth to the new covenant people of God. The parallel is strong, suggesting that what's happening here is some would call it a reconstitution of the people of God. Others, the birth of the church. There's problems with putting it either way. In one sense, the church has always been. But in another sense, what happens here, what happens as a a result of the cross and the pouring out of, of, of of the Spirit is a renewal of a covenant on a different foundation, no longer on the law of Moses, but on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And no longer is this covenant written in tablets of stone outside of us, but it's written on the tablets of our hearts by way of the presence of of the Spirit in us. So this part of the work of, of God in this passage is to give birth to his people, the church, or to reconstitute on a different foundation with a different center. That's what he does. He initiates, forms a people. Practically, what that means is, is if that's what the Spirit does, is he gives birth to a people, a covenant people, a church, and forms them, then you're going to see evidences of the Spirit's work because the people of that church family are going to care for each other, sacrifice for each other, love each other, forgive each other when we offend each other, which we will always do and has always happened. That is a people who are striving truly to love the unity of this church that God has created, which I think explains why Paul, when he was addressing uh, the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian church, if you don't know it, most of you know this, was a really messed up church. You had a a kid sleeping with his stepmom, and you had a really messed up theology of resurrection, and yet the first thing that the Apostle Paul addresses is their division, because it's so contrary to what the Spirit started and what he forms in in a people, a covenant people. That's one of his works, is he he has formed a people on the foundation of Christ and his work, and now in 
inhabited by the presence of God. So that's, that's the first one. Second one, this whole sounds like a mighty wind, rushing wind. Everybody in Jerusalem heard it, so it must have been gale force, something big. Everybody's gathering together as a result of it. What is that supposed to signify? If the Pentecost, the day, tells us that God renewed or reconstituted or gave birth to the church, then what is this wind? Again, it's, it's fitting. Spirit, pneuma means wind. Ruach means wind. But throughout the story of the Bible, it is, it is God's breath that gives life, Right? I mean, the, the, the wind of God, the spirit of God hovers over the face of the deep, over our dark, dark planet. And he says, let there be light. And then there's light and there's life. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, when God created man, it says that, and the Lord breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam and he came to life. This life, this wind brings life. This breath of God brings life. And even after, even after the uh, the brokenness and the fall of mankind. Um, the prophets prophesied of a day in which the wind would come again. This is looking at this from the Old Testament vantage point, and it, it, I think it becomes clearer. Where God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, you remember Ezekiel's valley of dead, dry bones, nothing's alive. And God says to Ezekiel, here's what you're going to say. Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied, that word goes forth as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army, Ezekiel 37, verse 9 and following. It's calling, prophesying, blow the wind, and life comes. And that's precisely the sense, is here you have this... Believers are gathered and, and the Spirit is poured out on them in the sense of a wind that is new creation life has started. A new creation is born um, where, where God is going to, through his Spirit, open hearts and open lives and create new creatures with hearts that yearn to love and to hope and to trust in the Lord, that, 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 that long to learn what it means to love each other as Christ loved us. That is new creation life and that's what the Spirit came to do with us. That means one of the evidences of a spirit, the spirit in the work of the church or a spirit alive in the church is that this new creation life manifests itself like in works of obedience, in works of sacrifice, in works of love. It's, that's Ephesians 2, right? We are his workmanship created, newly created by the spirit in Christ Jesus for good works which he has prepared in advance for us that we should walk in them. And when one is living out new creation life that the Spirit has given, because the Spirit is the life of the church, well, then we will experience to some degree or another or in growing degrees the Spirit in our lives. And the opposite is also true. Where we are living in kind of a hard-hearted, callous state where we know we're not living how we should, but we continue to be there, one can't expect to experience the full power of the Spirit of God in your life. As it, it, it quenches, and what does quench do, right? It's just like throwing water on, 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 a, on a fire. It just draws down the heat. So there's sign number two. It's wind. This is life. This is new creation. Life, bringing the church to life, bringing God's um, new creation into being. So that's the second one. Third, 
And this is, again, the strange one. This tongues as a fire. Tongues as a fire. What are we supposed to make with this? I'm going to come back to the tongues for a second, but the fire as a fire. That, that, that verse scared me as a kid, to be honest with you, because it was cloven tongues. It's like, whoa, that's disgusting. It's a cloven tongues. The fire, but again, looked at from the vantage point of the Old Testament, it's actually quite wonderful because throughout the Old Testament scriptures, like the fire is a manifestation of the presence of God. Moses meets God in a burning bush. Um, God leads, feeds, guides, protects his people Israel, a cloud by day and a pillar of what by night? Of fire. When God meets with his people Israel on Mount Sinai, it says the mountain was like a furnace. It was, it was on fire and there's smoke and there's, there's wind and lightning. It's a sign of the almighty presence of Yahweh, this whole idea of fire. That's, that's the symbol through the... Through the scripture, God shows himself visible to the naked eye in fire. So what we have here in this rushing wind and fire is, no words can capture this, is nothing less than word-defying. Because what's being pictured is the same almighty God that made the mountain smoke, who is so holy that he says, you can't even come onto my mountain, don't even touch it, or you're going to die. That same presence, fiery presence of God, is now seen coming into the room, and not just setting upon, but actually coming into his people. There's no way of getting your head around Almighty God, who made the mountain smoke now coming not only upon but in his people, something that was only made possible by the fact that Jesus paid for all of our sin, indwelt by like Almighty God. And if that truth, if we could get beyond theory to, to the reality of I actually believe like the presence of Almighty God lives in us, we would be a lot more bold, a lot more courageous. A lot more sacrificial, unafraid. I know that the Almighty dwells within my heart. You might be thinking, well, man, I just, we don't experience that, or I don't experience that. Well, for one, we can't always count on our subjective feelings being the arbiter of truth. He's there whether you feel him or not. There's also can be things that Quench, disobedience, laziness, different kinds of... The, but I think one of the main ones is just the simple lack of belief that this, this is actually true. We believe maybe in theory, but not in reality. Like the Spirit has been given. We have it. It's already here. We don't have to go looking for Him. I mean, when, when I was thinking about this, a stupid image of, of my forgetfulness came to my mind. You know, um, I lose my wallet sometimes, and I keep it in the same drawer, and I ruffle through my drawer, throwing stuff everywhere because I'm frustrated because I can't find my damn wallet. Go upstairs, go through all my pants, where's my wallet? And then something stupid happens, like my wife says, hey, did you check your back pocket? <laughs> I feel so stupid because it was here the whole time. Point being, the spirit, the spirit, is not something you have to go looking for. 
It's been here all along. The real question is, do we believe it? And, and Paul prayed a, a prayer to this end that I think is a good one for us to take to heart and just to pray for our own lives and, and pray for each other. When he prayed for the Ephesians in chapter 1, he, he prayed that God would um, give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And that having our hearts enlightened, we might know, they might know, we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. It is greatness of the power of the spirit that God has given us by which we've come to life. He's saying, I'm praying that you'll grasp this. That's what he prays. What a great prayer for us. It's like, Lord, let us grasp with the eyes of our hearts this truth that Almighty God has, has entered into his church. And he's here. We don't have to go looking for him. That's sign number three. And then there's a final one. is sign number four. Again, these are all signals of something world-altering is taking place. The last one is this whole tongues thing. They began to speak in other tongues. This is a supernatural event in which they are speaking the languages of those who had come in from out of town to celebrate the Feast of Weeks together, who spoke Egyptian and Latin and Greek and Aramaic and a bunch of other languages. Languages. They were hearing it in their own language. That is, this is a miracle. It's a sign of something. Well, what is it a sign of? What are we supposed to take from this? Because we easily get bogged down in the charismatic questions of what are tongues and does, do we still have tongues today? Which misses the entire kind of thrust and point. Is that now people are hearing the wonders and the glories of God, which probably center on the works of of God and Jesus Christ, which Peter preaches. It's the first sermon right out of cha- in chapter 2. Well, it, I think it, it, it indicates two things. One is it's a reversal. Back in the old days of human society, as a result of human pride, God confused the languages and separated out the nations because of human pride. And here, in this Pentecost moment, that um, fragmenting, uh, separating out of the languages and nations is now reversed. Telling us that God is in the process by way of the cross and by way of the Spirit of reuniting what's been broken. So that... They get to hear, people get to hear from diverse ethnicities and languages. They get to hear what God is doing. That's, that's part of it. It's God is reversing the flow. He is the only one who can reunite humanity. Truly reunite humanity. But it moves in the forward direction too. Because these tongues, movement of lips and words, that's part of a major thrust of of the Spirit's work in our world. That is the, the thrust of, of mission, of declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's the whole thrust of the book of Acts. Where it opens up with Jesus saying, hey, wait, and when, you, when my power comes to you, you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to speak. And you're going to speak here in Jerusalem, and you're going to speak in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And every tongue and tribe is going to hear, and people are going to be drawn in from every tongue and tribe. Hello, tongue. 
It's a whole sense of, of mission. I mean, Acts begins in Jerusalem. By the time it finishes, we are in imperial Rome where people are bowing to the, the, the need of Jesus because of the gospel going out in all tongues. That's, that is another sign of the Spirit of God alive in a church. And that is there is a passion, there's a burden, there's a seriousness about the proclamation of the gospel both within and outside the church and seeing the gospel of the kingdom go to the uttermost parts of the earth. That is a church where the spirit is alive, where there is a, a, a mission fervor. There's a, a sense of we've, we've got to proclaim this. That's, that's what the spirit of God delights in is, is the proclamation, the speaking both formally in, and informally in conversations and coffee conversations with people that's the spirit delights in and I, you know I have to say that I, I believe that guys like, like Carl Barton, John Stott and Sinclair Ferguson are right to notice that within the New Testament like this Holy Spirit is what they call a reticent or um, self-effacing member of the Trinity that is you really don't find very many places in the New Testament where the spirit takes center stage and says look at me which explains why I can't find in the New Testament, I can't find a single place, and maybe you can, and if you can, you've got to tell me, but I can't find a single place where the people of God pray to the Spirit. But they pray to the Father in the name of Jesus in the Spirit. And even in these, this book where the, the Spirit is unleashed, who's the star of the show? It's Jesus. It's like... When God's people, his church, make much of Jesus in the world and in their worship, I think the Holy Spirit is just like going, yes, that's, that's, that's my heart. That's my heart. So listen, this, this is, again, to me, this is an amazing event. I mean, God's Spirit gives birth to his new people, his new covenant people. Um. He recreates life, real, eternal life. He has brought the presence of Almighty God into our hearts. We don't have to go looking for him. We simply need to realize and believe it's already ours. And then finally, his heart is mission, to honor and glorify Jesus Christ in the nations. And that, I think, Though we could go on and on and on about more and more of the Spirit, because it's certainly not the list. This is part of the working of the Holy Spirit of God that He has been given to us. And I, I hope that we will realize in greater degrees the prayer of Paul when he said, I pray that your eyes might be enlightened and you might come to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power of His Spirit. To you who believe. May that be a reality. That's all I have to say about Pentecost. Let me pray. Father, I just ask that you take this truth and do what only you can do with it, and that is um, press it deep into our hearts and convictions and persuasions of soul that we would walk confidently knowing that not only do we belong to you, but you inhabit us. Um, you, the, the fiery mountain, have come into the hearts of your people, your temple, the church. And help us, O oh God, to believe and live in that truth.
In Christ's name, amen.